season four of the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you joined me today. Before we get started, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to all of you that have subscribed, listened and reviewed the episodes. I really do appreciate you taking the time. Welcome to the next episode of the Art of Teaching podcast. I have the great pleasure of introducing you to another phenomenal guest, Dr. Fiona Young, an architect and researcher in the field of learning environments. Conducted through the Innovative Learning Environments and Teacher Change ILETC project at the University of Melbourne, Fiona's PhD research identifies strategies to support leaders in recognising and using the affordances of innovative learning environments. In this episode, we talked about the role of affordances in learning environments and how to create your own amazing spaces for learning and why they matter. Core to her role is enhancing learning opportunities through design and interpreting and bridging understanding between educators and architectural teams. I hope that you get as much out of this wide-ranging discussion with Dr. Fiona Young that I did. Please enjoy. Dr. Fiona Young, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for chatting with me. Where are you phoning from? I'm phoning from Sydney and thanks for inviting me. No problem. It's a, uh, you're obviously, as we all are, working from home and trying to juggle family life, professional life, relaxation. How's it going for you being in lockdown? Um, We're definitely looking forward to the end. I've got a well, we live in a terrace house here, and so there's two of us working, one in the attic, one in the space I'm in, which is the spare room, and a daughter, a nine-year-old daughter downstairs who's in year four doing the learning. Um, so it's challenging. Yeah, it's very diplomatic. It's chaos at our house. It's absolute <laughs> chaos. I'm at the dining room table. My wife's working in the bedroom and uh, my kids are at daycare. And that's the only time I get to do anything. So um, I think we're just, uh, we're getting through it. It's not always pretty, but um, we're looking forward to uh, uh, to the day that we can actually go out and see people, I think. I'm sure. Same, yes. um, quite possibly uh, the most important question. Uh, what is your coffee order? <laughs> Wow, the funny answer to that one is that I love the smell of coffee, but I don't drink it. Fascinating. Did you have a bad experience with coffee or did uh, do you just not like it? I actually do like it, but um, I think that my natural propensity is that I'm on a bit of a high anyway, so I don't actually need the impact of coffee. Fantastic. Yeah, that, I mean, that makes sense. You do... Uh, um, you do seem like you probably don't need that anyway. Like you're already naturally quite uh, curious and excited to be alive. So uh, maybe caffeine will tip you over the edge. Who knows? Do you enjoy uh, hot drinks at all? Like maybe herbal tea or? I have been drinking turmeric lattes. Lovely. Isn't that they're quite nice? Yeah, I, I haven't managed uh, to get into those. My wife's into them and I just, I don't really like the idea of turmeric and lattes, but maybe I'll have to try it. Definitely, definitely worth a try. Fantastic. Um, what is a book uh, that you have recently read um, that has had an impact on you? It could be within your field um, of architecture and design, or it could be much broader than that. Yeah, this is this one. I hope it doesn't sound like I'm trying to plug a book that I'm working on. <laughs> but um, at the beginning of the year, I 
started co-authoring the next edition of a book called Managing the Brief for Better Design. And as part of that process, so the two other authors, or there's three other authors actually, they're all in the UK. One of them is 83 years old, has been in the field of strategic thinking and design for decades and decades. And being part of this book with them has really exploded my thinking in terms of design and the process of design and how you do it for a sustainable future and and what you need to think about doing it in a meaningful and ethical way. Interesting. Yes. Yeah, so it's really made me question, you know, what I do in my practice. Wow, that that's fascinating. And and um, for those people that are not familiar with your work, um, when someone asks you what do you do, uh, how do you answer that question? Well, that that's a really hard question. It <laughs> is a hard question. But, and partly it's because I'm juggling multiple roles. So one is that. Um, I'm a co-director of an architectural studio, Hayball, in Sydney, in the Sydney studio. I'm doing this co-editing of the book that I just mentioned. Um, And I recently finished my PhD, which was through the Learning Environments Applied Research Centre at the University of Melbourne. And so I'm still collaborating with my supervisor in particular on publishing papers. And and then I've got this (laughs) nine-year-old. Yeah. In terms of what, when I tell people what I do, apart from the array of what I do, um, somebody nicely described it as being a navigator. And that's very much around being this bridge between education or educators and designers in rethinking the types of spaces and experiences for the future and helping them navigate their way through to get the outcome that they aspire to. The thing that's really interesting about affordances is that these spaces don't get used unless the users can perceive the opportunities of that space. Fascinating. And that perception is dependent on the user's ability and their intentions of using it, and that is influenced by the socio-cultural context around them. So the school culture. Fascinating. And and what were um, what are some what were some of your assumptions going in uh, to this research? And did were they correct, or did you have to redefine some of those assumptions that you had? Well, I think the project assumptions were that architects were much more familiar with the opportunities of these new learning spaces because lots of architects were designing these. Mm things that are called innovative learning environments or ILEs, um, but they weren't necessarily being used well by teachers. But in my research, when I was looking, I had two parts. The first part was understanding the perceptions of teachers and designers of these different types of spaces. Um, And so in that part, what we found was that teachers were recognizing way more than architects in these spaces, way more opportunities for learning. And what that points to is the differences, the different professional perspectives of architects and educators and the fact that we really need to work very closely together to develop a common language as we're designing and developing these spaces together. Wow. 
that that's so fascinating and it, it sounds like in many ways that you're kind of your research was sort of sitting on the fence or building a bridge between the experience of teachers uh, and also that of architects. And as you said, really trying to bring these two, um, uh, these two fields together. Do you have a, like a favorite architectural quote um, or one that um, really encapsulates uh, uh, what you were investigating? I do, in fact, and that's partly because coming from, well, I think architecture is quite a traditional profession in the way it's taught mm. and people's perceptions of architecture is that it's about designing buildings. Um, and, I, and what my research does is really delves into the opportunities and what the role of an architect should be. And there is a favorite quote that um, is, from Herman Hertzberger, who's this incredible architect who was doing amazing things um, from the 60s and 50s. But what he said is, architecture has unfailingly approached the designing of schools from a less than critical position. All the while, it seems, architects meekly followed their briefs and were mainly concerned with formal aspects of the exterior without busying themselves with spatial opportunities that might lead to better education and the role they themselves might fulfill there. Gosh, well, yeah. that's, that's fascinating, it's, isn't it? Well, it's, it's definitely a call to arms for architects to really look outside their own boundaries to really understand and step into the worlds of their clients. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And it seems in many ways, just as teachers have to rethink about their approaches to teaching uh, pedagogy and methods and to, uh, in many ways, question some more traditional methods. Uh, that is also the case of many industries, including uh, architecture, to really get back to the uh, the, the purpose um, of why they are doing what they are doing. Um, That's right. And actually, that um, what you mentioned about teachers revisiting what they do, that's actually relates to the second part of my research, wow. because recognising that perception is the critical thing to help these spaces be used the way in which they're intended. Um, I looked at strategies to support teachers to transition their practice to recognize space as a resource. So the affordance of the space to help them pick up the opportunities. Yeah. yeah. And so I learned so much from, from that and used the techniques used there, working with my teams of architects to help them transition and rethink about what they do as well. It's interesting, isn't it? The, the that whole notion of um, of perception. Um, would you mind maybe unpacking uh, what that means and why that is so important? I guess the perception is our our own beliefs and mindsets around any particular context. Hmm. And what's really interesting is that every single individual perceives. The world in their own way and that's because we all come from different backgrounds and contexts yeah and therefore in, in relation to these new learnings when you come into a new learning space with all these different teachers coming to use a space that can be used more collaboratively they bring different baggage with them yeah yeah and what's really important to help them shift their own mindsets is to be able to reflect on the past and to discuss this with other people to understand what other people's perceptions are to come to a common understanding yeah. of what these opportunities are of these spaces and how they might use them together and what the protocols they might need to use them together are 
Yeah, really, really, really fascinating. And, and like I said, there's, there's so many, so many questions about that. It seems like a um, your research uh, is so significant and so important. So, thank you for taking the time to to unpack that. Um, I'm just curious when you uh, think of the the term design, uh, what comes to mind? I reckon it's changed from when I first started trading as an architect, and now when I think of design. I think what's critical is it's about process, bringing people together, understanding what the context is, negotiating, understanding problem seeking in order to problem solve to come to a new and innovative response. Yeah, that's a I think that's a wonderful, a wonderful definition. I, I'm just uh, curious, Fiona, uh, when you're constructing these spaces, um, these incredible learning spaces, um, does it make you think about who the clients are? There's obviously the paying clients, which are the schools or the governments, and also the the students that will learn the spaces. Um, how do you make sure that you get firstly who are the clients when you're building these spaces? And uh, yeah, we might have to edit that question. Sorry. That's right. I, I, well, I think you're right. You've got your paying clients, but actually I think of everyone who has a stake in this building as a client. And therefore that's why this process is so important that you actually have to bring in your end users into the process of design so that they, and well, also that we all collectively can develop this shared intent yeah. so that they have an understanding of how this building needs to be used or how they need to think about transitioning practice yeah. to use this building because in a way the project isn't a building the project starts in a sense when this building is completed for yeah. all those people because they need to carry the life of that building forward yeah it does make me wonder um how we we, we don't often consult the students uh, when we're thinking about uh, curriculum design, when we're thinking about designing spaces in classrooms, and they are the ones that are going to be using those uh, those uh, those spaces. And I think quite often as educators, we make assumptions without actually asking the most important stakeholders, which are the children. Are there questions that people have already been asking, or is there a bit of a renewed focus on the way that we use and interact spaces when it comes to learning? Um, well, I guess if we think about the way schools have been designed traditionally, which was the cellular box classroom. In the 80s. <laughs> yeah. Well, even in the centuries ago. Uh, yeah. That was designed for a particular type of pedagogy, which was around this idea of educating lots of people quickly yeah. and educating them with particular skills that they need for their jobs um, back then. And in a sense, that model has perpetuated, mm. you know. So we all, for the longest time, when we thought about schools, that's what we thought about in our minds. We thought yeah. about classrooms, teachers at the front, students yeah. listening. And so I don't think people thought so much about the space. It was just um, the expected thing. Yeah. But I think more recently. So important. That, yeah, people have been thinking a lot more about learning yeah you know yeah. what does learning mean and particularly what does learning mean in yeah. this day and age when the world has shifted so dramatically from when those wow. original schools were designed wow and um so therefore there's been questions about what type of space wow. what's the type of learning that we want our yeah. students to have now and into the future yeah it, it's it's so interesting and such an important 
such an important question. Um, what are some of your favorite spaces? They could be schools, they could be, I know you worked extensively in museums, uh, they could be cities. What are some of your favorite spaces that you've been to? How do they make you feel and why are they so important to you? Okay, um, Very well, so many, so many yeah. of my favorite spaces, but um, if I start with an urban space, yeah. for instance, I live near Central Park, Yes. Which is, you know, across from Broadway. And um, I feel like that space has been really well designed. And you can feel it when you go there because of the life of the space. And, and the life of the space is very much because of the types of affordances, if I can use that word, which I'll yeah. probably get to talk about later. Yeah. In the spaces, the opportunities for different types of people to engage in different types of activities. And you can see that it brings um, multi-cultures, multi-generations together in the one space to have that vibrancy and to have that wonderful sense of community. Yeah. yeah. So that's a really nice example of a, of a contemporary yeah. piece of design. Yeah. I remember I, uh, my undergraduate, uh, sorry, I did my undergraduate at Sydney Uni, and so I remember walking past um, what used to be in that space uh, for many, many years, and it has been, it has been transformed, and I, I think it's it's really lovely to see uh, some of those organic or those natural connections. I mean, you walk through the space, and there are people there, um, like you're saying, of all of all ages and of all ethnicities, talking and collaborating together and having food and kids playing and running around and it's such a beautiful um it's such a beautiful it almost feels like an oasis like you're not actually in the city but of course you are in one of the most <laughs> densely populated parts of the city at broadway um are there any other um like i said you worked extensively or you worked extensively extensively in exhibitions um, what what are some of the important features of ex, uh, exhibitions and, and how do you create those spaces? Sorry, are there any similarities between those spaces, educational contexts, and also uh, the spaces that you described at Central Park? Yeah, well, I really like this. I like being pushed to think about the relationship between museum and mm. exhibition spaces and learning spaces. And I yeah. guess it's really interesting that you bring it back into other types of spaces too. And I, I guess the really nice thing about um, exhibition or museum spaces is that, is that they are about enabling people to make their own choices to find what mm. draws them to it. Yeah. And as, as a designer of those types of spaces, you have to, you think so much about people's experiences. Yeah. And, um, and also that the content of an exhibition or what a curator's message or story is and what the objects are and how to bring them to the fore in a way that the visitor would like to engage and delve in deeper and find more about it. Yeah. yeah. And I think for me, um, and, and this was something I didn't realise till much later after my early career as an exhibition designer, um, there's this really great relationship between designing learning spaces for student-centered types of environments where you mm -hmm. really want the learners in these spaces whether they're students or teachers yeah. to yeah. find their own paths of things that engage with them yeah. in different yeah. ways and to be able to be empowered 
Wow. To to pursue yeah. that path. Yeah, it, it's so interesting. And it, it just when you're talking, it made me think about the Museum of Contemporary Art, um, which is one of my one of my favorite spaces. Um, and uh, to be honest, um, modern art for me for many years, I always found sort of quite intimidating because I wasn't really sure what to do with it. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know how to engage. I didn't know how to interact with it. And one of the things that I, I, I love so much about going to the MCA or Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney is that I feel like I can engage, um, I can engage and approach these exhibitions in my own way. Uh, and so I can either go really closely and really look at them, I can step back, I can appreciate them in the broader context of the exhibition. And it's a space which is, um, which is so non-confrontational and also such a collaborative and a really beautiful space. Um, and I'd never really thought about, and until I uh, started looking through your work, I never really thought about why that was the case for me in the MCA. Um, and it's, it's, I think it's really beautiful to see, um, like obviously that is done intentionally. Um, that's not an accidental space. Someone has actually thought about the set out and the layout of this particular exhibition. Um, but um, it was the first time I just realized the importance of spaces. And I also think about the, um, uh, the uh, Frank Gehry building at UTS. Um, I just remember standing, my wife, I used to work at UTS and um, any opportunity I could uh, get to go and pick her up and just stand in front of the building and look at it. Uh, I, I was late many times to pick her up from work because I was distracted by the building. Um, but that is just, in another way, that is just so captivating um, and so unusual and, and so unconventional. Um, how do you respond to uh, buildings like that? I mean, do you, do you, what do you think about the Frank Gehry building or the, the um, uh, Chow Chuck Wing building? Uh, is that an important space to you? Uh, do you, yeah, sorry, it's a very, that wasn't really a question, more of a, a, a thought. Um, but how do spaces like that make you feel, ones that are unconventional? Oh, I think unconventional spaces are fantastic because, as you, you say, yeah. Yeah, they, yeah. they do make you pause and stop and look at your surroundings and actually soak them in a bit. And, and so, Fiona, is there a teacher that has had a significant impact in your life? Take us back to when you were at school. Okay, there was, and that was Mr Warburton, who taught me social studies. Amazing. <laughs> when I was in third and fourth form, maybe even fifth. And then in the sixth form, it was geography then. And he came up to me out of the blue and said, have you ever thought about being an architect? And it had never, ever crossed my mind. So he then helped me um, get a work experience opportunity, which I believe was at his cousin's architectural practice in Dunedin. Wow. I know. And so after that one week of um, doing that work experience, I thought, wow, this this seems like this could be a really great, exciting thing for me to pursue. So that's when I studied architecture. So, so why did, I'm just curious, why did he think architecture would be, I mean, it's obviously, it obviously was a great decision uh, for you to go into architecture, but, but why did he think that you would thrive in that particular industry? It seems a bit left, a bit left field um, during a geography and social studies class. But um, yeah, why do you think he said that to you? I would love to know as well. And, and <laughs> I'm actually friends with Mr. Warburton's daughter. Lovely. Um, and about four years ago, maybe five years ago, before, sadly, before, I mean, yeah, before Mr. Warburton passed away, sadly, I connected with him again and I asked him, but he, 
couldn't remember why. Did he remember the conversation? Not really, but he was, because of my friend, he was always conscious that, that I've always said in a number of yeah. times it was because of him. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? And and I um, I don't know who said this, but I, I remember somebody telling me that it's very difficult to connect the dots looking forward, uh, but looking back, it seems to make sense. Uh, does that career path, did that make sense to you? Do Did you sort of have a natural uh, propensity to... to, to appreciate and understand spaces did you were you particularly uh, critical or observant when you went when, when you went into a space that you didn't like or does like, it, I, I think I don't, I don't know I think it might have been just the way that I represented and drew things yeah, wow. as part wow. of it but I think that comment that you made when you reflect back things make a lot more sense for me that really does resonate in terms of my career because I feel like I haven't had um, a, a linear Great. career path yeah. by wow. any means. And that's what's led me to this funny hybrid position that I'm in now. Wow, wow. That, that's really interesting. And, and that's one of the common threads with so many people that I've spoken to on the podcast, including people that I thought, surely you're so well accomplished surely it was a clear linear path like because to be able to achieve what you had in your lifetime it doesn't really you need to kind of get started at an early age but so many people I think have at least that who, who I've interviewed have really followed that curiosity and that um uh, that those kind of breadcrumbs to particular uh, different interests and it's really interesting to hear you say the same thing I think that's um I think that's fascinating and I, I truly believe that things don't happen by accident um but it does seem to um I find that fascinating that you started off doing work you had a teacher speak to you and say this would be a great idea then you pursued a work experience in an architectural firm um what was your experience like at the University of Melbourne, especially completing your PhD? That is a huge achievement. Uh, so congratulations. Um, what were you studying and uh, what do you hope that your research achieves? So that I was part of the Innovative Learning Environments and Teacher Change project, yes. which is what I did my PhD through, which is, uh, I think I mentioned earlier as part of the Learning Environments Applied Research Network, University of Melbourne. And that was an amazing opportunity because being part of a project, you're not doing your PhD solo on your mm -hmm. own, but there's this yeah. team of incredible people around you. And in this case, it was architects and educators um, and museum educators. And so we were all, you know, I think there were about eight of us or nine of us, and we would be talking um, about our research with each other and evolving our collective thinking amazing yeah totally amazing yeah. and I'd, lo I'd love to uh I, I i don't know if you're willing to share your phd but it would be really lovely to see some of your research i think that is such a, a such an amazing um area of study i'm sure that would be fascinating I'd, I'd well i'd love to share it it feels like you spend so long doing it that you might yeah. as well share the benefits of it with everybody else particularly if yeah. it can make a difference yeah, and why, why the University of Melbourne? I mean, there's, there's, there's so many, I, I know why I chose to go there to do my master's, but I'm just curious, why did you choose to study through the University of Melbourne? Well, that's because that's where the Learning Environment Applied Research Network were, and yeah. the ILETC project was based, and it's essentially a centre of excellence for yes. 
this thinking around pedagogy and space. Yeah. So, yeah, I couldn't have chosen anywhere better to have gone for it. Fantastic. And and why move from uh, designing uh, exhibition spaces to designing schools and learning spaces? What was the transition from that uh, like for you? Um, it was really interesting because I, I loved exhibition design. And in 2006, I moved to Dublin to work. And because there was this boom over there and they were desperately looking for designers. And so I moved to a company that actually did retail design because I thought it had a really strong correlation to exhibition design. And at the time I realized it wasn't as great a connection as I wanted at that particular point in time. But then I worked for a company where I worked on a school and that was really inspiring for me. And one of the things I, I learned when I did exhibition design was how much joy it brought to be designing something for the general public, for lots of people, instead of designing mm. a singular house for you know a couple or a family. You, you're making more impact on more people. Yeah. And that was the same with schools. But the one, the second project I worked on was for an order of nuns in Cork, and that was the self-presentation order. And what they, this was the order that started education in all of Ireland before the government was dealing with mainstream education. And now that in their enclosed order, they had about five elderly nuns living there. They knew they needed to do something with their building moving forward. And the government weren't dealing with, um, well, they wanted to do something that the government weren't dealing with, which was people that didn't fit mainstream education. Wow. So they were looking at putting a not school into that place. Wow. And as part of that project, they had as one of their educational specialists, Professor Stephen Happel, and another one was Sean McDougall from Stakeholder Design, also in the UK. And so for me, being part of that project, like I was exposed to this whole different world of educational thinkers and essentially wow. what learning could be. Wow. And so that was the beginning of my journey of getting into the research side, realizing there was this whole new world and just digging deeper and deeper in relation to how I, as an architect, could support and help influence this way of thinking. Wow, that is fascinating. So many, so many questions I have for you about that. Um, uh, I actually uh, interviewed Professor Heppel last night and he was at one of the most, it was one of the most fascinating conversations I have ever had. And um, it was just, um, just so inspiring. I was absolutely exhausted after our wide ranging discussion and I went to bed, uh, but really, really, really interesting. So it's, it's lovely to see that there's a, um, a relationship with you both there. It's really interesting to see. Well, Stephen's been such a huge influence on me and we've collaborated oh. on things since. And yeah. so that's really nice, that connection. Yeah, really lovely. And, and I'm just gonna digress for a moment. Uh, you mentioned retail design. Um, I find the retail space really fascinating, um, especially as there is more and more of a move to online, uh, even before COVID. And what I'm seeing, and, and I don't know if this is correct, but what I'm seeing is a huge investment into the design and construction of retail spaces. Um, why is that the case? Why do you think companies are really trying to, uh, I'm just thinking my local Westfield, 
um, it used to be pretty um, pretty boring, and now they would have spent millions and millions and millions of dollars to make it into a more enjoyable space. Um, do you have any thoughts on how the retail space is changing? Um, well, I think, as you say, the online um, world of retail is growing and, yeah. and becoming a huge thing. But I think what's really important, they, the, the retailers are also recognising the importance of the physical yeah. and creating an experience yeah. for people yeah. to want to come to so that people yeah. actually get to understand the brand um, yeah. and want to buy into it so that they can continue to buy online. So, it's so yeah. fascinating, isn't it? And, and like, sorry, this is just an aside, but for me, I would now take my children to Westfield for the experience of going to Westfield um, because everything I can get at Westfield, I can get online now. Um, I can, and for the same price. So there's really no need to interact with people anymore, especially with great refund and return policies. But it is, it, I just find that really fascinating, the, uh, the investment into these new um, collaborative spaces, these new uh, places where um, shopping is an experience as opposed to just a transaction. But yeah, really, really interesting, yeah. I was just thinking that's very much like the way in which we think about sticky learning environments, the sticky mm. university campus, that you actually have to think about the experience in order to draw people there because you want to create that vibrancy, which draws them back. Fantastic. I um, I did an interview a little while ago uh, with um, a, a gentleman uh, from Tezuka Architects uh, in uh, Japan who developed the, uh, the circular kindergarten, uh, which yeah. I think is so simple and so genius. And he was saying that the great thing is that if, if kids have enough and decide to run away, they will eventually just come back because it's a circle. Um, but I find that space endlessly fascinating. I would love to visit it once all of this COVID is over. Um, but yeah, are you familiar with that space? Oh, yes. I've yeah. visited a few times. Have you visited it? Wow. Yeah. And it's definitely as good and it's way better actually than the pictures. Yeah. And I know, um, I actually know Taka well. Oh, Taka wow. And have collaborated with him on a few things. And um, yeah, we, we dovetail really well with That's our nice. work where I bring the, the learning thinking in terms of the pedagogical uh, opportunities of space. And then he brings his incredible, beautiful, creative brain of amazing. how to wrap that around amazing architecture. Amazing. And it, it's, I would love to visit that. So I will uh, let you know when I can finally get over there and uh, how the space right. made me feel. Um, I just want to read a quote, uh, which I found uh, fascinating from your website. And it says, I... A 2018 study of 20 independent schools in Brisbane revealed that boys' schools had three times the amount of outdoor play space within their immediate school grounds than girls' schools. What do you think this, uh, sorry, what role do you think design plays in either reinforcing or breaking down these gender stereotypes? That is a big question. Um, the reason why I ask, I'm a dad to two girls and I, I can't imagine somebody um, saying they can't do something just because they're girls. And so what do you think, uh, uh, what it, firstly, can you maybe explain that quote a little bit um, and talk about why um, or how design either reinforces or break down these, breaks down these gender stereotypes in schools? Yep. Um, Big question, my apologies. I might have to edit that one a little bit shorter. 
fine. <laughs> I, I think that que questions or discussion around gender and school spaces is a really tricky one because mm. often when you get asked about that, you feel like you're being um, asked for a binary answer that yeah. this type yeah. of space is That's better true. for boys and this type of space is better for girls. And I know through the research that I've done around that type of thing that, you know, there may be certain propensities for some boys or some girls to like certain things, but you can't stereotype mm. and say that's the case for all of them. Absolutely. And when you step back and look at it, you, you actually realise that, you know, spaces that are diverse, spaces that enable choice, spaces that have beautiful light, spaces that are aesthetically pleasing, they're type, the types of spaces that people love, whether they're boys or girls. Exactly, yeah. But having said that, I think that quote that you read is interesting because that um, relates to a little bit of research around outdoor play spaces and schoolyards, yeah. and particularly the work of um, Fatima Aminpour, where she found that in her research, a lot of girls in particular liked the in-between spaces, not the big open sports fields that often schools are, are synonymous with, but more of these kind of smaller pockets of spaces and even the spaces that are generally out of bounds, the more yeah. intimate spaces. Yeah, fascinating. And I think it takes me back. I've just got a picture next to you of uh, the Tokyo kindergarten. And um, it's uh, that sort of, it's amazing that, that that inside space, so in the kind of a, the donut hole um, is a wonderful uh, area to play. And so there's that integration between uh, these outdoors and these indoor spaces, um, which is fascinating, absolutely fascinating. So do you think that, um, so is it is it important you think that that whole transition between outdoor and indoor, is that an important thing to think about? Why, why is that important uh, in terms of learning spaces or is that important? I think it's definitely important. And I guess, well, one of them is actually the connection to nature is a really important um, aspect of learning. And in fact, I guess with the Barrett and, and um, Zhang research, it shows that, in fact, you have higher rates of creativity in writing yeah. when you are wow. connected to the outside or connected to nature. Wow. And another thing is that it's a it's an asset. It's like you shouldn't just be thinking outdoors for play and indoors is for learning, but learning can take place anywhere in school. And why not be able to open your doors so that learning can continue to the outside? Fantastic. And then I think the third one now that we're all realizing is from a COVID perspective, mm. the importance of ventilation and airflow and how the outdoors does provide great opportunity for learning. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. And, and we will definitely touch on the impact of COVID and design, which is a huge, a huge topic on its own. Um, but before we get there, um, I'd love to hear about uh, your work with uh, South, South, sorry, South, the South Mel Melbourne Primary School. That's a bit of a mouthful. And also um, the, uh, the design of uh, vertical schools. I know that there's one uh, in Sydney, uh, St Andrews Cathedral School, which I had the privilege of working at for a while, which had a basketball court on the roof. It was essentially a skyscraper. Um, do you think there is a, a, a move to, in more densely populated areas, there is a move towards um, vertical schools? And also what are some of the implications uh, of those in terms of learning and design? Yep. Um, well, there's definitely been a bit of a movement over the last 
five, six, seven years to, um, I mean, I know that St Andrews and IGS have been vertical schools for years, but there is, uh, can I start that again? Of course. <laughs> No problem. It was a, honestly, it was a, it wasn't a well-worded question. So we, yeah. Do, would you like me, do you want me to ask the question again? Because I probably need to re, restate it. Is that all right? If it makes it easy for you, but actually, can you not mention South Melbourne? I mean, I, I, I could off respond to that, but I didn't work directly on it, even though I can talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. What I, I worked on lots of vertical schools. Okay. So, um, all right. I will rephrase the question and I'll just ask, uh, what has your experience been like working on vertical schools? I think okay. pretty general. Is that okay? That's fine. Okay. Um, uh, so, uh, Dr. Fiona, what have your um, what has your experience been working on vertical schools, and do you think that that is a uh, a new trend in terms of school design? Um, I've, I've actually worked on quite a few different vertical schools, and, and both in terms of the actual uh, actual buildings, such as APHS. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Philip High School in Parramatta, yeah. and also propositions for others. So I do understand what the issues and complexities are of them, but maybe just stepping back, there is a, more of a movement, or there has been more of a movement towards them over the last maybe six or so years. Yeah. And I mean, definitely that is a response to increasing population, urbanisation, and a lack of land, and also yeah. the cost of buying a plot of land in order to create a school big enough to accommodate the population. Yeah, absolutely. And are there the, do, do we still need to have the same considerations when designing these spaces in terms of accessibility, creating opportunities for collaboration, creating equitable spaces, or are there different things we need to consider when um, building within these restraints? I think they're all important, but there are different things because just the practicalities of how do you operate a vertical school come into play? And I, it's not a matter of just taking a horizontal school and yeah. flipping it upwards flipping it up, yeah. and saying that, you know, year, year three is here and year four is there. But I think you actually need to completely step back and reconceptualize mm. your educational model. Yeah in order to make that vertical school experience the best ex experience it can be for the students and the teachers using it. And that's Absolutely. possibly quite different. Yeah, it's so important. And I, I was thinking as you were talking about the, the wonderful vertical gardens that are on um, uh, at uh, Central Park um, as you drive through Broadway. And I remember seeing those for the first time and thinking, gardens don't go upwards. And then I thought, hang on a second, what is a garden? Why or why can't this be the case? And I'm sure that's the same uh, when you're designing some of these new spaces is actually to challenge some of those assumptions and go, okay, like what are the essential qualities of, in this case, a school or a learning environment? And how can we utilize the space that we have um, we have most efficiently? But um, it, it's really, really interesting in seeing uh, some of those, those designs, um, especially um, schools in the... Uh, in Sydney and also um, in uh, sort of Western Sydney, so around the Parramatta Way, uh, seeing just how those designs are made. And do you think this is ushering a new uh, era of school uh, learning and design, or do you think we will uh, stick with what we've traditionally known, which is uh, small boxes? I, I don't think we can stick with what we know. 
yeah. because of those pressures that I said. So I, I do think that we will be thinking more about how to yeah. make the most of what opportunities and land that we can get. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, which then also makes you also think about how to be efficient and effective with the vertical school that you put in there. Because when you think of vertical schools, they are generally part of an urban environment. And so you've got a community around that school. Yeah. What are the opportunities to make this school the center of the community? How do you make it more porous? Yeah. At, you know, I know you have to deal with security, but you can also deal with porosity at the same time and creating a space for the community, what the school can give back to the community mm. as well. And, um, it sounds like your time working in um, uh, exhibition design really, um, really feeds in nicely to what you're doing now thinking about the ways that people uh, these spaces are accessible you're talking about uh, creating porous spaces collaborative spaces um do you think there's a lot of parallels between what you did previously and what you're currently doing i think that comment that you made when you reflect back things make a lot more sense for me that really does resonate in terms of my career because i feel like i haven't had um a a linear Great. career path yeah. by wow. any means and that's what's led me to this funny hybrid position that I'm in now. Wow, wow. That, that's really interesting and, and that's one of the common threads with so many people that I've spoken to on the podcast, including people that I thought, surely you are so well accomplished, surely it was a clear linear path, like because to be able to achieve what you had in your lifetime, it doesn't really you need to kind of get started at an early age. But so many people I think have, at least the, who, who I've interviewed, have really followed that curiosity and that, um, uh, that those kind of breadcrumbs to particular uh, different interests. And it's really interesting to hear you say the same thing. I think that's, um, I think that's fascinating. And I, I truly believe that things don't happen by accident, um, but it does seem to, um, I find that fascinating that you started off doing work. You had a teacher speak to you and say, this would be a great idea. Then you pursued a work experience in an architectural firm. Um, what was your experience like at the University of Melbourne, especially completing your PhD? That is a huge achievement. Uh, so congratulations. Um, what were you studying and uh, what do you hope that your research achieves? So that I was part of the Innovative Learning Environments and Teacher Change project, yes. which is what I did my PhD through, which is, uh, I think I mentioned earlier as part of the Learning Environments Applied Research Network, University of Melbourne. And that was an amazing opportunity because being part of a project, you're not doing your PhD solo on your mm -hmm. own, but there's this yeah. team of incredible people around you. And in this case, it was architects and educators um, and museum educators. And so we were all, you know, I think there were about eight of us or nine of us, and we would be talking um, about our research with each other and evolving our collective thinking amazing yeah totally amazing and yeah. I'd, lo I'd love to uh I, I i don't know if you're willing to share your phd but it would be really lovely to see some of your research i think that is such a it's such an amazing um area of study i'm sure that would be fascinating oh, I'd, I'd 
well, I'd love to share it. It feels like you spend so long doing it that you might as well share the benefits of it with everybody else, particularly if yeah. it can make a difference. Yeah, and why, why the University of Melbourne? I mean, there's, there's, there's so many. I, I know why I chose to go there to do my master's, but I'm just curious. Why did you choose to study through the University of Melbourne? Well, that's because that's where the Learning Environment Applied Research Network were and yeah. the ILETC project was based. And... It, it's essentially a centre of excellence for yes. this thinking around pedagogy and space. Yeah. So, yeah, I couldn't have chosen anywhere better to have gone for it. Fantastic. And and why move from uh, designing uh, exhibition spaces to designing schools and learning spaces? What was the transition from that uh, like for you? Um, it was really interesting because I, I loved exhibition design. And in 2006, I moved to Dublin to work and because there was this boom over there and they were desperately looking for designers. And so I moved to a company that actually did retail design because I thought it had a really strong correlation to exhibition design. And at the time I realized it wasn't as great a connection as I wanted at that particular point in time. But then I worked for a company where I worked on a school and that was really inspiring for me. And one of the things I, I learned when I did exhibition design was how much joy it brought to be designing something for the general public, for lots of people, instead of designing mm. a singular house for you know a couple or a family. You're, you're making more impact on more people. Yeah. And that was the same with schools. But the one, the second project I worked on was for an order of nuns in Cork, and that was the South Presentation Order. And what they, this was the order that started education in all of Ireland before the government was dealing with mainstream education. And now that in their enclosed order, they had about five elderly nuns living there. They knew they needed to do something with their building moving forward. And the government weren't dealing with, um, well, they wanted to do something that the government weren't dealing with, which was people that didn't fit mainstream education. Wow. So they were looking at putting a not school into that place. Wow. And as part of that project, they had as one of their educational specialists, Professor Stephen Happel, and another one was Sean McDougall from Stakeholder Design, also in the UK. And so for me, being part of that project, like I was exposed to this whole different world of educational thinkers and essentially wow. what learning could be. Wow. And so that was the beginning of my journey of getting into the research side, realizing there's this whole new world and just digging deeper and deeper in relation to how I, as an architect, could support and help influence this way of thinking. Wow, that is fascinating. So many, so many questions I have for you about that. Um, uh, I actually uh, interviewed Professor Heppel last night and he was at one of the most, it was one of the most fascinating conversations I have ever had. And um, it was just, um, just so inspiring. I was absolutely exhausted after our wide ranging discussion and I went to bed, uh, but really, really, really interesting. So it's, it's lovely to see that there's a, um, a relationship with you both there. It's really interesting to see. Well, Stephen's been such a huge influence on me and we've collaborated oh. on things since. And yeah. so that's really nice, that connection. 
Yeah, really lovely. And, and I'm just going to digress for a moment. Uh, you mentioned retail design. Um, I find the retail space really fascinating, um, especially as there is more and more of a move to online, um, even before COVID. And what I'm seeing, and, and I don't know if this is correct, but what I'm seeing is a huge investment into the design and construction of retail spaces. Um, why is that the case? Why do you think companies are really trying to, uh, I'm just thinking my local Westfield, um, it used to be pretty, um, pretty boring and now they would have spent millions and millions and millions of dollars to make it into a more enjoyable space um, do you have any thoughts on how the retail space is changing um well i think as you say the online um, world of retail is growing and yeah. and becoming a huge thing but i think what's really important though the retailers are also recognizing the importance of the physical yeah. and creating an experience yeah. for people to want to come to so that people yeah. actually get to understand the brand um, yeah. and want to buy into it so that they can continue to buy online. So It's so yeah. fascinating, isn't it? And, and like, sorry, this is just an aside, but for me, I would now take my children to Westfield for the experience of going to Westfield um, because everything I can get at Westfield, I can get online now. Um, I can, and for the same price. So there's really no need to interact with people anymore, especially with great refund and return policies. But it is, it, I just find that really fascinating, the, uh, the investment into these new um, collaborative spaces, these new uh, places where um, shopping is an experience as opposed to just a transaction. But yeah, really, really interesting, yeah. I was just thinking that's very much like the way in which we think about sticky learning environments, the sticky mm. university campus, that you actually have to think about the experience in order to draw people there because you want to create that vibrancy which draws them back. Fantastic. I um, I did an interview a little while ago uh, with um, a, a gentleman uh, from Tezuka Architects uh, in uh, Japan who developed the, uh, the circular kindergarten, uh, which yeah. I think is so simple and so genius. And he was saying that the great thing is that if, if kids have enough and decide to run away, they will eventually just come back because it's a circle. Um, but I find that space endlessly fascinating. I would love to visit it once all of this COVID is over. Um, but yeah, are you familiar with that space? Oh yes, I've yeah. visited a few times. Have you visited it? Wow. Yeah. And it's definitely as good and it's way better actually than the pictures. Yeah, and I know um, I actually know Taka well, oh, Taka wow. and have collaborated with him on a few things. And um, yeah, we we dovetail really well with That's our nice. work, where I bring the the learning thinking in terms of the pedagogical uh, opportunities of space, and then he brings his incredible, beautiful, creative brain of amazing. how to wrap that around amazing architecture. Amazing, and it's, I would love to visit that. So I will uh, let you know when I can finally get over there and uh, how this place made me feel. Um, I just want to read a quote, uh, which I found uh, fascinating from your website. And it says, a, a 2018 study of 20 independent schools in Brisbane revealed that boys' schools had three times the amount of outdoor play space within their immediate school grounds than girls' schools. 
What do you think this, uh, so what role do you think design plays in either reinforcing or breaking down these gender stereotypes? That is a big question. Um, the reason why I ask, I'm a dad to two girls and I, I can't imagine somebody um, saying they can't do something just because they're girls. And so what do you think, uh, uh, What firstly, can you maybe explain that quote a little bit um, and talk about why um, or how design either reinforces or break down these, breaks down these gender stereotypes in schools? Yep. Um, Big question, my apologies. I might have to edit that one a little bit shorter. That's fine. <laughs> I think that questions or discussion around gender and school spaces is a really tricky one because mm. often when you get asked about that, you feel like you're being um, asked for a binary answer that yeah. this type of space is That's better true. for boys and this type of space is better for girls. And I know through the research that I've done around that type of thing that, you know, there may be certain propensities for some boys or some girls to like certain things, but you can't stereotype mm. and say that's the case for all of them. Absolutely. And when you step back and look at it, you, you actually realise that, you know, spaces that are diverse, spaces that enable choice, spaces that have beautiful light, spaces that are aesthetically pleasing, they're type, the types of spaces that people love, whether they're boys or girls. Exactly, yeah. But having said that, I think that quote that you read is interesting because that um, relates to a little bit of research around outdoor play spaces and schoolyards, yeah. and particularly the work of um, Fatima Aminpour, where she found that in her research, a lot of girls in particular liked the in-between spaces, not the big open sports fields that often schools are uh, synonymous with, but more of these kind of smaller pockets of spaces and even the spaces that are generally out of bounds, the more yeah. intimate spaces. Yeah, fascinating. And I think it takes me back. I've just got a picture next to you of uh, the Tokyo kindergarten. And um, it's uh, that sort of, it's amazing that, that that inside space, so in the kind of the, the donut hole um, is a wonderful uh, area to play. And so there's that integration between uh, these outdoors and these indoor spaces, um, which is fascinating, absolutely fascinating. So do you think that, um, so is it is it important you think that that whole transition between outdoor and indoor, is that an important thing to think about? Why, why is that important uh, in terms of learning spaces or is that important? I think it's definitely important. And I guess, well, one of them is actually the connection to nature is a really important um, mm. aspect of learning. And in fact, I guess with the Barrett and, and um, Zhang research, it shows that in fact, you, you have higher rates of creativity in writing mm -hmm. when you are wow. connected to the outside or connected to nature. Wow. And another thing is that it's a it's an asset. It's like, you shouldn't just be thinking outdoors for play and indoors is for learning, but learning can take place anywhere in school. And why not be able to open your doors so that learning can continue to the outside? Fantastic. And then I think the third one now that we're all realizing is from a COVID perspective, mm. the importance of ventilation and airflow and how the outdoors does provide great opportunity for learning. 
Yeah, it's really, really interesting. And, and we will definitely touch on the impact of COVID and design, which is a huge, a huge topic on its own. Um, but before we get there, um, I'd love to hear about uh, your work with uh, South, South, sorry, South, the South Mel Melbourne Primary School, that's a bit of a mouthful, and also um, the uh, the design of uh, vertical schools. I know that there's one uh, in Sydney, uh, St Andrews Cathedral School, which I had the privilege of working at for a while, which had a basketball court on the roof. It was essentially a skyscraper. Um, do you think there is a, a, a move to, in more densely populated areas, there is a move towards um, vertical schools? And also what are some of the implications uh, of those in terms of learning and design? Yep. Um, well, there's definitely been a bit of a movement over the last five, six, seven years to, um, I mean, I know that St Andrews and IGS have been vertical schools for years, but there is, uh, can I start that again? Of course. <laughs> no problem. It was, a, honestly, it was a, it wasn't a well-worded question. So we, yeah, do, would you like me, do you want me to ask the question again? Because I probably need to re, restate it. Is that all right? If it makes it easy for you, but actually, can you not mention South Melbourne? I mean, I, I, I could off respond to that but I didn't work directly on it even though I can talk about it yeah yeah okay um all right what I, I worked on lots of vertical schools okay so um all right I will rephrase the question and I'll just ask uh what has your experience been like working on vertical schools and then okay pretty general is that okay that's fine okay um uh, so uh, Dr Fiona what have your um what has your experience been working on vertical schools and do you think that that is a uh, a new trend in terms of school design um I've, I've actually worked on quite a few different vertical schools and, and both in terms of the actual uh, actual buildings such as APHS yeah. Um, yeah. Philip High School in Parramatta yeah and also propositions for others so I do understand what the issues and complexities are of them, but maybe just stepping back, there is a, more of a movement or there has been more of a movement towards them over the last maybe six or so years. Yeah. And I mean, definitely that is a response to increasing population, urbanization and a lack of land and also yeah. the cost of buying a plot of land in order to create a school big enough to accommodate the population yeah absolutely and are there the, do, do we still need to have the same considerations when designing these spaces in terms of accessibility creating opportunities for collaboration creating equitable spaces or are there different things we need to consider when um building within these restraints i think they're all important but there are different things because just the practicalities of how do you operate a vertical school come into play and i it's not a matter of just taking a horizontal school and yeah. flipping it upwards flipping it up, yeah. and saying that you know year year three is here and year four is there but i think you actually need to completely step back and reconceptualize mm. your educational model yeah in order to make that vertical school experience the best ex experience it can be for the students and the teachers using it and that's Absolutely. possibly quite different yeah it's so important and I, I was thinking as you were talking about the the wonderful vertical gardens that are on um uh at uh, central park um as you drive through broadway and i remember seeing those for the first time and thinking gardens don't go upwards and then <laughs> i thought hang on a second what is a garden why or why can't this be the case and i'm sure that's the same 
uh, when you're designing some of these new spaces is actually to challenge some of those assumptions and go, okay, like what are the essential qualities of, in this case, a school or a learning environment and how can we utilize the space that we have um, we have most efficiently. But um, it, it's really, really interesting in seeing uh, some of those, those designs, um, especially um, schools in the uh, in Sydney and also um, in uh, sort of Western Sydney, so around the Parramatta Way, uh, seeing just how those designs are made. And do you think this is ushering a new uh, era of school uh, learning and design, or do you think we will uh, stick with what we've traditionally known, which is uh, small boxes i i don't think we can stick with what we know yeah because of those pressures that i said so i, I do think that we will be thinking more about how to yeah. make the most of what opportunities and land that we can get yeah yeah um which which then also makes you also think about how to be efficient and effective with the vertical school that you put in there because when you think of vertical schools they are generally part of an urban environment. And so you've got a community around that school. Yeah. What are the opportunities to make this school the centre of the community? How do you make it more porous? Yeah. At, you know, I know you have to deal with security, but you can also deal with porosity at the same time and creating a space for the community, what the school can give back to the community mm. as well. It sounds like your time working in um, uh, exhibition design really... Um, really feeds in nicely to what you're doing now thinking about the ways that people um, these spaces are accessible you're talking about uh, creating porous spaces collaborative spaces um, do you think there's a lot of parallels between what you did previously and what you're currently doing i, th I think there are and I, you know that was really nice to hear you unpack that because when yeah yeah sorry i was going to go back into my past that's um, okay oh no okay well actually after my first stint as an exhibition designer, yeah. one of my really good friends said to me, as after some conversation, she said, you think differently now. You, you speak mm -hmm. differently about what you do. And I thought, wow, really? Because it's wow. a lovely compliment. It, it was a lovely compliment. And I, I feel like just because you're always so busy doing, yeah, you don't often have the time to step back to reflect on what you've done and why you do it. Yeah. And that's yeah. why it's quite nice to have these opportunities, to have these conversations. Yeah, it, it's really fascinating. I think that is like I said, such a wonderful compliment from your friend. And and um, have you always been a, you seem like an endlessly curious person, somebody that asks a lot of questions and, and really kind of ponders. Is that something that you have uh, always done or is that something which you have developed, that, that curiosity? Uh, I suspect it might be something I've always done, but I, I feel like there was one pivotal point yeah. in my education, which was a turning point for me. And in 1992, I went on exchange to the University of California in Berkeley. Yeah. And I lived in a dorm called International House, where there was, I think, 60% international students and 40% Americans from all different ages, all different backgrounds and studies. Yeah. And so I just met so many fascinating people. I, you know, I learned about my lawyer friends and other types. I had a roommate who was studying political science. So that really opened my mind to yeah. different ways of thinking. And that was exciting. Yeah. Wow. That's really, that's really cool. Hi. How are you going? Um, um, Daddy, um, 
How'd you get the Zoom link? What Zoom link? For the... Oh, Eloise. Yeah. Why don't you look on your email? And... Okay. Okay. Yeah, we, we are so nearly finished, I promise. We have Let that. Let me just close the door. I don't... That's fine. Um, you know, I, uh, Fiona, I, I totally get it. Like, my kids would be... My kids will be wanting to say hello, and I, it's just I get it. It's very exciting. Um, so just a couple uh, a couple more questions. Um, so uh, Fiona, I'm just I'm just curious. Um, not all schools uh, will have access to these wonderfully designed learning spaces. Um, not all schools will have the funds to uh, completely uh, rethink their learning environments. So what advice do you have to those principals and educators um, when they're thinking about creating these inspiring learning spaces on a budget? I think that's entirely possible. Yeah, wow. And, and, I feel, and I've seen it in action actually, one through my research where part of my research involved participatory action research with teachers from two different schools. Yeah. And in that re research, they reflected on what the issues were and they determined what easy fixes they could make to their spaces to trial and test and come back with. Yeah. And so that was a simple matter of moving furniture around. Wow. wow. And um, involving the, the research of understanding what they wanted to achieve by doing so. So that, that's one easy thing. I also learned through my research, other teachers who they might um, open a door that was constantly closed between two classrooms, but actually just open it and yeah. see, and those teachers would start to collaborate. Yeah, or, wow. Um, and also I found in a research experience that I did in-house at Hable with IGS, with my daughter's kindergarten class at the time. And through this experience, which we called Educator for an Hour, where architects came into the learning space and they did reading and maths with these five-year-olds to understand how space influenced these children's learning experiences. Wow. But we, through that, we actually reflected with the teacher about what we found and what we saw and what the opportunities were. Mm. She got interested in it. She went away and did research over Christmas, looked up IKEA catalogs, and term one next year, she had completely transformed her classroom, both through moving furniture, buying floor um, rugs, and using her columns in a really clever way to create nooks and crannies and to put Lego and Lego things on the walls. So, to, uh, and yeah. that was a transformation. So, I feel yeah, like. Yeah. There's lots of things you can do on a shoestring. And I also think Stephen Heppel's got some great examples of that in Madrid, which people can look up. Yeah, fantastic. Um, it's so interesting, uh, Fiona, and your work is uh, endlessly fascinating and, and so extensive. I mean, there's no way we could um, have talked about it all uh, during this short uh, discussion, but um, I just have one, uh, sorry, two final questions. Um, you, why do you think space, like, oh, sorry, with with the COVID, the current COVID pandemic, most uh, teachers, or well, all teachers are, are working from home and obviously classroom spaces are absent, or sorry, are, are vacant. Um, do you still think space, spaces are really important? And what has this, this uh, pandemic taught us about the importance of the physical environment for classroom spaces? I definitely think space is important still. Good. And <laughs> 
<laughs> otherwise I wouldn't have a job. Yes. Um, I, I can see that I think the teachers have transitioned so quickly and done a great job of trying to make the most of a difficult situation with this remote learning. Yeah. But you can see that one of the big things lacking with the remote learning is the social side of education. Yeah. Like kids really miss learning with other people, having other people around them and playing with other people. Yeah. And that's why you need to come together physically. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's so important. And I think um, what this pandemic, one of the things this pandemic has taught me is just the importance of schools as spaces. Um, and obviously the role of the teacher is absolutely paramount, paramount but also the role of, of learning spaces is, is more important now than it ever has been before. And so, um, Fiona, I just wanted to thank you for taking the time. Uh, thank you for calling me while um, juggling your professional career and your parenting responsibilities and all of that other life admin. And I'm incredibly grateful for your work. And um, uh, I find uh, the work that you're doing endlessly endlessly fascinating and so where can people find out more about you and follow some of the work that you are currently engaged in first of all thanks so much for the conversation i've enjoyed it too and um secondly i'm on linkedin so they can connect with me there and i'm also on twitter fiona y27 yeah fantastic well i'll make sure that i put in all of those uh, contact details into our show notes um, but like I said I, I couldn't I can't thank you enough for taking the time it's been wonderful uh, to chat to you and thank you for everything that you are doing to um, help create a wonderful collaborative and meaningful learning spaces for our children so uh, keep up the good work thanks so much thanks Fiona bye-bye bye, -bye. bye. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussion. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. I've one favour to ask. If you could please head to the iTunes page of the podcast and rate and review the episode. This would really help to get the interviews and resources to as many people as possible. Also, I've created a private Facebook group so that we can continue the discussion after each episode. The link is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and until next time.